0: Thank <laughs> you.
1: This episode of Dopey, this bonus episode of Dopey is brought to you by Aloe Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California, in West Hollywood, Malibu, Silver Lake, Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob to create a facility that treats addicts and alcoholics with compassion and connection rather than control. They have decades and decades of experience in treating addiction and alcoholism as well as co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They have a detox, which is comfortable or as comfortable as possible, which is hard to find when you're kicking things like heroin or crack or alcohol or benzos or whatever you're kicking. They have amenities you wouldn't believe fucking or maybe you would sound bath meditation, surfing, equine therapy, the fucking potentially incredibly spiritually transformative sweat lodge. So if you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California for help, I highly, 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 highly suggest going to Aloe. Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Dopey the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit, and I'm Dave. And that was the latest from music genius and dopey contributor and my friend Br'er Brian with the Dopey Doe, Carpenter's Dopey Doe. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. But more importantly, let us rejoice in Patreon. Because the bonus episodes come from last year's Patreon, and this was one of the best ones. If you want to join Patreon and get all sorts of video content, last week my dad and Ray were on the video with me. There's videos, there's episodes, there's music, there's music videos, there's so much stuff happening on Patreon. Check it out again at www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. And here we go. This episode um, is one of the most dopey, intensive episodes ever. And it's a a heart-wrenching story. And this guy, his name is Tim Ryan. He's an author. He's an addict in recovery. He works with addicts in recovery. And uh, he's one half of the power couple of him and Jennifer Jimenez. And his story is ridiculously heartbreaking and inspiring. So enough with the kerfuffle. Here he is, Mr. Tim Ryan.
2: Dave, thank you for having me on. Truly an honor to be on the Dopey Podcast.
1: And one of the most amazing things about Tim Ryan is he happens to be married to supermodel Jennifer Jimenez. How's that going?
2: Well, let's say I definitely leveled up with this one. You know, it's it's awesome. I mean, Jennifer... When we met a couple years ago, I was in the middle of my second divorce and, and we were partnering up to speak together, to possibly open a treatment center, to do interventions. We, we, I wanted to partner with a female because when I was speaking, I'm having all these women coming up and spewing their trauma on me and, and I needed a female to work with. And, and long story short, when I met her, it was love at first sight, and I think we were engaged five months later, and we got married on New Year's Eve um, of last year in Beverly Hills with her mother and my daughter, my five-year-old daughter, and a justice of the peace. And, and life is good. I mean, it's—I never—I want the second half of my life to be full of love, joy, and happiness. And it's Jen's first time being married. She's never had kids, and uh, I couldn't imagine doing life without her.
1: Well, it's amazing. And also just the fact that you both are so about your recovery and you're so about helping out addicts. Um and you guys are always traveling and helping out addicts. Why don't you tell the audience about what what kind of stuff you're doing with the with their people, basically?
2: You know, so we still have a foundation which I started six years ago called a man recovery foundation. We guide and direct indigent people into treatment. So I moved on to the board, Jennifer's on the board. I still field every phone call for that. Um, We do interventions nationwide. We speak all over the country. Um, We were working in treatment. We've got some other things uh, that we're working on. But, you know, we guide and direct people constantly. But we've been in so many programs. You know, there's 35,000 treatment centers out there. There's probably 20, 25 good ones And uh, that's all we do. We don't get paid to do that. But, you know, it's the interventions and speaking. But coming into this year, you know, we lost 85 speaking events because COVID hit. So we had to readjust and we've been doing some consulting. But now we're starting to do more online. And, you know, I think last year we did 180,000 air miles. We live on airplanes. We're between Los Angeles and South Florida and all my kids are in illinois so you know life is good we just got back to la two nights ago we had to go to southern illinois for a project we're working on and then we're in florida for a month and just doing the deal and helping people you know and, totally. and enjoying this thing enjoying life
1: and when you do i mean that's that's all that you know that's all that we should be doing is trying to enjoy life and the fact that you get to help so many people um is amazing and the fact that you can communicate with so many people so many addicts uh it's good for you guys. It's good for, for us. It's good for whoever you get to talk to. Uh, how have you noticed uh, the effect of uh, COVID and isolation and fucking lockdown on uh, on the addicts you're, you're working with?
2: It has been fucking detrimental. I mean, we when COVID hit, you know, I can remember about a Because L.A., they locked down in March. And, and I can remember, Jen, about a week or two in because you know, she's almost 15 years sober. She's struggles from depression and all these other things. But she said, you know, I'm starting to feel this. And she kind of came up, you know, we have a pandemic within a pandemic right now, but you know, you, you take, you take away 12 step based meetings or Christian based meetings or smart recovery or refuge recovery or church people in recovery need purpose and connection. And all, all that was shut down. And, you know alcohol sales are up 250 percent, suicides are up a thousand percent mental health calls are up 850 percent. you know i'm seeing more and more people dying left and right and it's heart-wrenching it's heart-wrenching
1: yes um and when you talk about this purpose and connection i totally agree and like i didn't do i didn't stumble into dopey with chris uh for that for purpose and connection but it gave me that and i think it's been like incredibly helpful in my own recovery how helpful in your recovery do you think the work is for you like just as a personal thing
2: you know you, you have to keep a balance because when i started this i came out of prison and uh you know i would got my third dui and overdosed on heroin hit two cars almost killed four people and did 13 and a half months in prison and and lost everything. And I walked out of prison December 16th of 2013. And I had been in the technology space for 23 years as a headhunter and a recruiter. I owned an executive search firm. I went back into that space for three months and just didn't want to do it. So I started some support groups, set up my foundation, stumbled into working into treatment. I never in a million years thought I'd do what I do. But what I have seen is people get sober and they get on that pink cloud and they want to help people and all that. But what people need to understand, the work we do, the interventions, the speaking, whatever we're doing, that is our job. It has nothing to do with our recovery. And you need to be able to separate those and you need to be able to take down time. Because I saw this uh, December 16th will be 10 years that I lost my license. I have not had a driver's license in 20 years. So I finally (laughs) been petitioned to get it. Yeah, I had a full I had a full time driver for five years, but unfortunately, Jennifer is the driver. She packs us, she cleans, she does everything, and it's taxing and just traveling, you know, flying from Los Angeles to Florida and and having it it kicks your ass for a day or two. But it's having that downtime and the balance and enjoying ourselves because you can get caught up in this. And <clears throat> the best thing Jennifer taught me is, no, I can't do this. And no, I can't help you. And, and learning to shut my phone off prior to me getting with her, I kept all my cell phones on. I have three of them and I, I never put them on. Two. It rang at three in the morning. And I answered it. And I've learned to shut those off and I can't, unfortunately, help everyone and I've got a put self-care first because without self-care i will self-destruct right Ooh, that's a good one without self-care you will self-destruct not
1: like to, not to mention you won't be able to help anybody it's the old on the airplane if you if you don't get your own oxygen you can't save your kid's life you know you, you I, exactly. need to exist
2: <clears throat> you know and, and as i explained, i can't save anyone i just had a guy this is kind of funny so When I was running my support groups, let me find the text message. This guy Gordon texted me today. This is kind of the way I operate. Gordon texted me today, says, good morning, Tim. Today I celebrate three years sober. Thank you for the suggestion of me getting in the middle of the herd. And I said, congratulations. It's a fucking miracle. Keep doing what you're doing. I love you. He said, I love you too. I remember the first time I walked into your support group and you looked at me and said, so what's your fucking deal? And I said, I'm an addict. I'm addicted to painkillers. And your response was looks to me like you're in the right place, brother. Let's get to work. He said, I'll never forget that. And that's the way I operate. I'm real talk, but I can't save anyone. I just guide and direct people and, and share my experience, strength and hope.
1: Right. And uh, and your story is just gnarly and um, and very, very painful. I mean, you're you're a survivor. And um, And the, the, you know, the, I think we should just talk about the, the, the hardest thing that I heard in your story was your son dying and you were clean when your son died. Would you, would you tell the audience a little bit about what happened with that?
2: Yeah. So I'll backtrack, you know, when I, Nicholas was my oldest son and when I met his mom, we met at work. He was uh, three years old, had a dad that abandoned him and I was adopted and, I married Shannon, and I adopted Nick, and we had three other kids, but <clears throat> I always treated Nick like my friend. He was my best friend going up, and, and I wasn't a father. I was a friend, and I was a dad that let him smoke weed and, and drink and all this stuff. Well, when I had caught my case and overdosed and hit these cars, about three months in— I'm fighting my case and I'm really dope sick. And, and Nick comes in the bathroom. He is 17. He said, what's wrong, pops? I said, what do you think, you idiot? I'm dope sick. And he said, not anymore, dad. Today's your lucky day. And my son threw two bags of heroin on the bathroom counter. And I, I got out of the tub and I did them. And I went in his room and I said, Nick, what in the fuck are you doing? He said, don't worry, dad. I'm just selling a little bit. And I said, Nick, you need to shut this down immediately. I said, this isn't weed. This is heroin. And you know what this drug has done to me. And my son looked me right in the eyes and he said, "Well, Dad, you're a successful drug addict." And I said, "Why the hell would you say that?" And he said, "Well, we've got a nice house. You have an office in the Wrigley Building. You make a good living." So in Nick's delusional mind, because I functioned, he thought I was successful. And I caught him doing heroin about six months later, and we started we started using together. And my son became my my partner in crime and. People don't understand that unless you're in that situation. But that's how my son and I bonded. And I ultimately went to prison. And my worst fear in prison was Nick was going to overdose and die. And I think he had been in treatment one more time. I got out of prison. Um, Nick went to treatment again. And at about 19 months sober, I went to see him in treatment. And, you know, he's like, Dad, you know, you're sober. I'm sober. He's like, picture me and you speaking in schools all over the country, a father and son team. And I'm like, Nick, I'd love that, but you've got to get sober. He's like, don't worry, I will. <clears throat> 30 days out of treatment, he's back in jail. He did 45 days. He got out. His mom picked him up, took him to lunch, and fed him and said, Nick, we're done. You know, you're not coming to my house. You're not going to Dad's. All I do is lie, cheat, and steal. And he's like, oh, I got figure it figured out. Me and my girlfriend are getting an apartment. Five days later, this is five and a half years ago, I called Nick, and I said, Nick, come to my house and get some Narcan. Um, and he said, Dad, I'm not on that bullshit anymore. And I believed him. And two days later, August 1st of 2014, Shannon called me at six in the morning and said, Tim, get out of bed. I'm coming to pick you up. Nick overdosed. Um, And I don't share this part of the story a lot. So Shannon was a nurse and she picks me up and we're driving and she's like, Tim, it doesn't sound good. They said he's unresponsive. Well, I took my phone and plugged my iPhone and plugged it into her phone charger in the car and automatically on. My music list, a song came up by the band 6AM, 6 Nicky Six's band, and it's a song called Courtesy Call, and Courtesy Call is about somebody overdosing and dying in a hotel room. So I unplugged the phone, and we just drove in silence to the hospital. We ran into the emergency room at Hinsdale Hospital, and, and Tim and Shannon and Ryan here to see our son Nicky overdosed, and about 30 seconds later, the chaplain walked out. I knew my son was dead instantly. And, and when I speak, I'll ask people, what was my next thought? And nine out of 10 of them will say, you wanted to go get high. No, my next thought was I'll be at a meeting that night. And then I had to go in and the doctor and, and go in and identify Nick. And, and I will never forget seeing my, my my son there with the aspirator in his mouth and, and cold. And he had been dead about four and a half hours. And than having to go tell his mother. I'll never forget that scream. Um, but yeah, that was the, the absolute worst day of my life. But the next phone call I made was to my sponsor. And uh, I was surrounded by people in recovery, and I, I went to a meeting that night. And uh, I can remember sharing at that meeting that my son had just died. Look. And you could hear that <clears throat> yeah. uh, from all the people, but that's what I needed to do. And the next day in the Chicago Sun-Times, on the front page, it said anti-heroin crusader loses son to overdose. And in Nick's passing, he really kind of solidified what I do. But at his funeral, um, there was about 800 people. And I would say about 400, 450 were people I did not know that were all in recovery that came to support me. And it showed me that this this recovery community is just awesome. And the next night I did an ARCAN training event at the same church that I had slotted. And, you know, I just kept moving forward. But, you know, since Nick died, I've, I've been to 150 funerals and, right. and I quit going. I'm I'm sick and tired of burying people. And, you know, when he died, he was with his girlfriend and, um, two friends and, he had snorted two bags of heroin and his friend gave him Barzanix. And these kids knew he was overdosing, but they were afraid to call nine one one, so they put him on the sofa, went in the basement, did more drugs, forgot about him, came up an hour later and he was dead. And the, the cops wanted to charge them with drug-induced homicide. I said, No, I'm I'm putting them all into treatment. But if they would have had Narcan, he could be alive. If they would have called nine one one In Illinois, there's a good Samaritan law. The cops would have come, paramedics hopefully rescued Nick, taken the drugs, and nobody got arrested. But those are things Jennifer and I educate today when we speak in high schools and colleges and corporations. People don't know about these laws, and that's where our system's broken.
1: Well, the system is broken in in so many ways. But the the word, I mean, first of all, I'm so sorry about your son and, and, like, the trauma that you had to go through, I, um, you know that the guy I started Dopey with died, you know, pretty, you know, two years, two and a half years into making the show. And, yeah. um, and my other, I had another best friend who died around then too. And, and a bunch of people have died around Dopey, and, and which is to be expected because we're all a bunch of heroin addicts. But when I talk to their parents, they say, they always say there is no getting over it. You know what I mean? You just have to get through it and you live with it. Um, how is that? Has it how has it changed you? Because obviously so, it changed you.
2: So that is pardon me, Dave. That's a, a, a brilliant question. And for a couple of years, I blame myself and I'm like, I'm the father that killed his son. And but I didn't. The disease of addiction killed Nick. And I was speaking in a high school about two and a half years later. And afterwards, I'm doing question and answer. And this 15-year-old girl puts her hand up and she said, Mr. Ryan, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah. And she said, when are you going to stop blaming yourself for your son's death? You didn't kill him. The disease of addiction did. And that little girl knocked me off my square. I I broke down crying. I gave her a huge hug. And then I shifted my thinking. And last year... Uh, August 31st, Jennifer and I were in Pennsylvania doing eight events and one was overdose awareness day. And we're at this event and there's, you know, 400 people and all these parents with their five and eight and 12 year old kids that are alive. And they're all just crying. And, oh, I miss Johnny. He died 12 years ago. And I miss Lucy. She died five years ago. But they're all crying. And what does this do to these younger kids that are with them? Because what happens is People live through their dead kids or their dead husband or wife. And I don't. I celebrate the 20 years Nick was on this planet. I cherish his life. I don't live through the day he died. So when when I got up to speak at that event, I said, look, I did what I did. And I said, look, you people have two choices right now. I said, you can live through the day your loved one died and go into a grief that you're never going to get out of. Or you can celebrate their life and take that negative and turn it into a positive. I said families here can start support groups the, the sober homes or the the treatment programs. you can go speak, you can start businesses that these kids in recovery can get jobs at. you can flourish your community and it turned out really well. We got a standing ovation, but it's it's shifting people 's thinking and everybody wants to blame here's an analogy i use so <clears throat> a father has the the 14 year old kid has his first beer with his dad um and then when the kid's 25 he gets in a, a dui wreck and, and kills somebody they blame alcohol they don't blame you know the kid they blame alcohol now take this scenario of some kid at 22 sells a bag of heroin or dies from an overdose. They want to blame the drug dealer. They want to blame everybody else. They don't blame the disease of addiction. They surely don't go back and blame the father that started drinking with that kid at 14 and and accepted that, and the kid transitioned into opiates and ended up dying. They want to blame the drug dealer, and people need to look at this. You know, parents play a part in this. Everybody does, and if you enable the behavior You know, nothing's going to change, but we've got to quit blaming. Um, It is a disease, and, you know, if I was using with my son and he died, that's what addicts do. You know, we use together, unfortunately. So that's where we got to educate on Narcan and this whole Narcan thing. You know, Narcan's great. It saved my life, but something we need changed is if somebody is brought to a hospital due to an overdose, they need to be put on a three- to five-day psychiatric hold immediately. So we have time to get peer recovery support specialists in there and try to convince that person to go to treatment versus making them stable and letting them walk out the door four hours later because that's what happened to me, and I went right back to using. So Narcan's great. It saves your life. But if we're not offering any resources after the overdose, we're just putting a Band-Aid on something.
1: Right, and I mean, even sometimes with resources, though, It's, it's nothing, you know, the, the psychic and spiritual change. I mean, you're a hardcore drug addict. You're a hardcore alcoholic. I read your book. Tim has a book, uh, from dope to hope, which is everybody should read it. It's a crazy journey, crazy story, uh, tragic story, but ultimately triumphant. You managed to have your own, you know, like I wanted a spiritual awakening forever and I didn't think I was ever going to have one. And then when I did, I didn't even see it as a spiritual awakening. You were, uh, like you said, a heroin addict, a Coke addict, obviously an alcoholic. Um, why don't you walk us through how that changed?
2: You know, it's crazy. I, I, you know, I grew up in the Northern suburbs of Illinois and in Wisconsin, the drinking age was 18. So at 14, we were going up to Wisconsin drinking. Nobody was getting DUIs. None of that was happening. At 15, I tried cocaine, but I still didn't start getting consequences until I checked myself into treatment in 1990 at 21. I started freebasing cocaine, blah, blah, blah. And then I was in and out of the rooms. I would go to uh, 12-step base meetings because that was my sa- my safety zone done to get a new job or to to shut the girlfriend or the wife up. But I had been 14 months clean and sober, living in Naperville, Illinois, wife and four kids, going to meetings, but I really never had the foundation. I kind of got a sponsor, I kind of worked the steps, but I thought I'm the guy that could get sober through osmosis by going to meetings. And I met a guy, Joel, and Joel, about three weeks later, asked me to take him to Chicago to move out of his apartment, which I did. And as I'm moving Joel out, his roommate Saba pops out of the bedroom. He's like, what are you doing here? I said, I'm moving out. Joel, what are you doing? He said, I'm doing heroin. You want to do something? Okay. That quick.
1: And you're and in, 14. you're in, you're in 12 steps at the time. You were doing meetings was, uh, at the time. Joel was, in. Was four, Joel was your, was in meetings with you.
2: Yeah. And I was four, I was 14 months sober, but I had no foundation. My foundation was made out of straw and pebbles instead of reinforced concrete with steel in it, you know? And, What's one bag of heroin going to do? That was it. And then my heroin addiction lasted 12 years, you know, eight overdoses, uh, clinically dead three times. And at the peak of my addiction, I was doing damn near five grams of heroin a day. Right. I mean, it was insane, but that's how quick and progressive this disease hits you. And my spiritual awakening was in uh, Northern Illinois Receiving Center right next to Stateville Prison when I got sentenced to seven years in prison. You know, I'm six foot one. Two hundred and twenty pounds today. I, I got the COVID nineteen, so I put on nineteen pounds. <laughs> but anyhow, yes. um, when I walked into when that judge Wada sentenced me, I weighed one hundred and fifty eight pounds. I had skin and bone, I walk and death, and I shit and puke myself for two weeks straight. I didn't sleep for a month, but. I'm in the holding cell until they figure out what prison you're going to go to. And, and I just looked up and I, I said, God, higher power, whatever's out there, please take away this obsession and compulsion to use. And I swear I will turn my will and life over to you. And please let me get into Sheridan prison. And the next day I was transferred to Sheridan prison. And there's 28 prisons in Illinois and two at therapeutic drug treatment programs. It's still a medium prison. But I got in there and Sheridan prison in the West Care program saved my life. I needed structure. I needed accountability. I needed to lose everything. But since that day, I have had no thoughts of drinking or using drugs. And I plugged into the 12 steps and and I I still have a sponsor and I sponsor people and I do meetings. And, you know, that program gave me the spiritual tools to live the life I live today, because people think, at least for me, you know, I, I, I got sober and I go to meetings and all that. I got sober to have the life I have today. I do meetings and all that, but that's just gave me the foundation to live the life I live. You know, my whole world isn't recovery. I, I work in the space and all that, but I do a lot of other things. I mean, my wife's just picked up three movies and a TV pilot. She got me a, a lead role in a pilot and then everything got shut down. But I do other things outside of recovery. I mean, it's a majority of my life. What I'm trying to say is the 12 steps and, and all that gave me the foundation to live the life I live. And if I decide I'm going to go open a pizza place, I'm going to go open a pizza place, right. you know?
1: Well, I think, I think that when you had your spiritual awakening, you had been in and out of uh, rooms for so long. You knew what had to be done in order to facilitate a spiritual awakening. But you also had, it's weird to say this, you were almost too successful in your using life to get sober because like, because why would you Tim? I mean, and Tim was this very successful entrepreneur. You made more companies than I've even like dealt with. (laughs) You built, you built so many things while using that. It was like impossible for you to get sober. Wouldn't you say,
2: man, you, you, so, you know, I made my first million at 22. I lost it by 23. And I'm the guy that had the, the 1.4 grade average who got an 11 on his ACT five times. I'm, I'm verb, pronoun, adjective. I don't know what the, what the fuck they are, but I knew how to learn from other people. And yeah, I, I was very successful, but that was a problem too, because I always thought I could buy my way out of things. I'll just get another, because I went to prison in 08 for four driving on revokes in a year. And I did 61 days and they release you, but I never had consequences until Judge Wattis gave me seven years in prison and my wife divorced me and we lost our home in foreclosure and I displaced my family. And my cellmate was a guy by the name of Big Perk and Big Perk was a uh, uh, Chicago gang chief for 25 years. And it's kind of a crazy story. When I got to Sheridan prison, I did 30 days in the seg building. Then you go to an orientation hall and I got into one of the little buildings and back and I go to walk in my cell, and there's this big black guy sitting on the bunk, all muscle. And I kind of looked at him. I said, hey, man, what's up? And he he's reading an AA Big Book, and he looks up at me and he said, hey, Whitey, you into recovery? I said, yeah, why? He said, because if you're not, brother, you ain't coming in this fucking cell, because that's all we do in here. I said, I'm into recovery. He's like, hey, I'm Big Perk. Nice to meet you. And James Perkins helped save my life because we didn't get a TV I wasn't in prison to do push-ups for noodles and get swole. I was there to change. And we read hundreds of books and, you know, Napoleon Hill and Tony Robbins and went through all the steps. And, you know, we we do group three hours a day, five days a week. And when we're in the yard, we walked in and had a meeting in the day room at night. We had a meeting and I needed to be sat down. That was God's time out for me. And I had two choices. I walk out of prison and I change or I go back to, to the same shit but I had to get humble. I had to surrender and I had to get out of my own way because I'm my own worst enemy.
1: Right. I was hoping big park was because he had the biggest Percocet pills in Illinois, but no, his last, <laughs> na- his last name was Perkins. You were, I mean, like it was a divine moment. You were lucky to get this kind of guy, that like basically put you through your paces. And, and you also had, I mean, it's one of those things, you know, it's, it's Providence it, it's you were in the right place in the right moment with the right background. You know, you had, you had failed on your own fucking merits a million times and now you had the chance to succeed with big perk and big perk so, got the chance to do it with you.
2: So I can tell you where, where I was in this prison, it was about 15 miles from a place called skydive Chicago and I'm an avid skydiver. I've got over 500 skydives. And I, I kind of felt like I am I was close to home and all this. Two weeks in, I had to go to the school building and you got to go see if you got a GED and all this. And I walk up to the guard desk and the guard looks up at me and he says your name. And I said, hey, Mattress. And he said, my name's Officer Nowak. Go stand in the corner." And about five minutes later, he comes over and he goes, so, Tim, what are you doing here? You jump out of any planes lately? Officer Nowak and I had skydived together for 15 years. And and, and he tells me, looks at me, says, Tim, you cannot let anybody know that you know me because I'll kick you out of here. And this is a good program. But that was also another godsend to me that, you know what, I'm going to be okay. And, uh, you know, prison to me. I hate to say it, but it was the greatest experience of my life. One of them because it saved my life. And don't tell me prison doesn't work. And if we had more structured therapeutic programs, they changed people's lives. And, and the the former warden is a really good friend of mine. I've, I've been into that prison fifteen times to speak. And you know, I speak in prisons all over the country now. And you know, I, I'm truly blessed. And when Jennifer and I will have tough times, I'll always say it's better than prison. You know, I'm not eating from a box underneath my bed. You know, I don't have to take a shit by putting up a towel, you know, and and I got a blessed life today. I might, I, I have everything I need and it's not from a financial side. And yeah, we struggled financially this year and all that, but it's okay. I've got a roof over my head, clothes on my back, food on the table I have a kick-ass recovery community and my life is truly blessed my kids are are healthy my mother-in-law is healthy my brother-in-law my parents life is good
1: let me ask you this because like obviously i only did did a few nights in jail you know that was the most i ever was around the penal system thank god um but you hear so many stories about people going to prison and using and uh and you got there and you were like fuck i'm fucked were you in withdrawal when you got to when you got there?
2: Oh god, it was hell on earth. I mean, I I, I was in Stateville or Northern Illinois Receiving Center, and you're locked in a cell 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You never leave that until they figure out what prison you're going to go to. And I, I shit and puke myself for two weeks straight. I did not sleep a wink for a month. I had total insomnia, and it took me probably six months to be able to sleep four hours consistently. Now I sleep like a rock, but I will never, ever forget that pain. And in the prison I was in, since it was a therapeutic community, every 90 days you do, they take 30 days off your sentence. So I ended up only doing 13 and a half months. They gave me seven years on paper, but I got three years for my third DUI three years for my fifth driving on revoke and they found a spoon and syringe and they gave me a year for that. But I really only have to do the top number three years. They cut that in half. So I'm going to do a year and a half. And since I got good time, I, I did 13 and a half months. And the ironic thing was I caught my case December 16th of 2010. I walked out of prison December 16th, 2013. Three years of the day I caught the case. I walked out of prison. I did 13 and a half months. But, uh, yeah, I was hell on earth for a long time. I mean, it, uh, i i so when I'm getting transferred to prison, um, <laughs> you, you get all shackled up on the buses. And, and first you had to go to the bullpen and see the doctor. And there's this guy on my mama, keep it 100. And I'm like, God, keep me away from this loudmouth. His name was Quelo. And I get shackled up with Quelo on the bus, and, and he just won't. He won't shut up and it's like a badge of honor. How much time did you get? I got a I got a five piece, I got a ten piece, and there's this white guy in the back of the bus double shackled. And Quelo looks at him, he goes, What'd you get, Whitey? And the guy just lifts his head up and he said, Forty to life. And the whole bus goes silent. <laughs> of and he course. said, What did you they said, What did you do? And he said, I caught my girlfriend cheating on me, so I cut off her head and her boyfriend's head and mailed them to her mother.
1: Oh my so god. So the whole
2: the whole bus was silent and we, we get into Sheridan prison and I'm like, God, please let this idiot Quelo stay on the bus. Well, he gets off and we get into the seg building and we get assigned our cellmates. And I'm like on my mama, please don't let this idiot be my cellmate. And sure enough, Quelo's my cellmate. I'm like, Jesus Christ. So we go into the cell. And the first thing he says is he says, Hey Sally, can I have the top bunk? I'm afraid of spiders. I'm like, yeah, rock and roll. I get the bottom bunk. So we go. they let you go to the day room for one hour every day, and that's it. Otherwise, you're locked in your cell. And we had to wear these baby blue Smurf jumpsuits. So we come back from the day room that night, and Quelo's like, hey, Sally, help help me get my jumpsuit off. And I'm like, dude, I don't go that way. And he's like, no, I'm serious. <laughs> and I pull it off, and all these ramen noodles start falling out in, in envelopes and a pen and pa- a pad of paper, and I said, what's going on? He looks at me, he goes, I'm plugged bitch. He goes, I'm a gang chief. He said, they take care of me. And here he goes, half is yours. Half is mine. I'm like, Quaylo, I like you. And he taught me how to cook a chili ramen noodle on a hot pipe that night. And that was the first food I had had in, in two weeks. And I'll tell you what, it was the best chili ramen noodle I ever had. And, you know, God right there was just putting the right people in my life and, and it was smooth sailing. So
1: were there people around you using like were people getting away no. with it? No,
2: no, 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 Because it was a therapeutic community. If you got in a fight, you're kicked out. Um, if you're I mean, they had a whole structure board and it was a lot of peer driven. And no, if it was an honor and a privilege to be there and. There might be a cigarette floating around, but if you got caught, you're out of there. There was some people that I can remember seeing all these police cars at the visiting building and a guy had his wife try to sneak in 50 hits of ecstasy and she got caught. She ended up getting nine years in prison and she had his kids with them and he got kicked out. But no, it's you didn't mess with that. And if it was going on, I wanted nothing to do with it because once you get plugged in dave you realize too i just don't have time on, on one of your dopey pages yesterday somebody made a comment you know i'm sober now but something to the effect of do you still hang out with your friends that you i use? saw and that like, yeah.
1: yeah
2: and i commented i said no 95 of the people i hang out with are people in recovery i just don't that's not in my realm anymore it's not in my world no i don't hang out with people that use you know
1: well, I, I think it sounds to me like this place, it worked because you could only be there if you're willing to do the work. So everybody yeah. around is focused on achieving this thing, on, on being committed together. It's it's that sort of fellowship thing well, within the team. I, w-
2: I would say there was I think they had 2000 inmates. I, I would say 300 were really plugged in. Um, some people shifted into recovery, but a lot of people lie to get in there because it was the prison that was closest to Chicago. So people lie to get in to be close for visits and people lie to get in to get good time. But you know what? It plants the seeds and, you know, it saved my life. And that's all I give a shit about. And I put forth the effort, you know, I changed every aspect of my life. And when I walked out, I put recovery first. And as, as soon as my parole agent showed up, I was at a meeting. I got another sponsor. I didn't miss a meeting for two and a half years. I went through the steps again and did everything I needed to do.
1: When did you – I mean, I'm going to take it back for a second because, I, I mean, like, I love hearing about the end. When did you know that you were an addict in the first place? Like, when did you really know – like somebody, I mean, I'm trying to write something, and I'm really struggling getting myself to write. And a friend of mine who's a writer, she was like, write about when you knew you were an addict. When were you sure you were an addict? 15
2: years old. You knew right away. 15 years old. First time I did so, we're at this guy Jim Spielman's house, and I can use his name because he died from a cocaine overdose. So It was me and my buddy Pat and Brian. And we said, we're sleeping at Pat's house and we go to Jim Spielman's. He was a senior in high school and he had a party and Brian's older brother, Joel was there. And I remember him saying, Hey, you guys want to do some cocaine and me, Pat and Brian each put up five bucks and, and Joel did. And we all split a quarter gram of cocaine. We each did one line of cocaine. I fell in love with that. And, and Pat and Brian are like, all right, we're going back to Pat's house. And I said, I'll be there in a little bit. And I went up to Joel, and I said, "Do you have any more of that?" He said, "I have a half gram. I'll split it with you. You owe me twenty five bucks on Friday." The first time I tried cocaine, I had it fronted to me, and that was the rest of my high school. I mean every weekend i I ran a pizza shop, and, and my whole world revolved around cocaine and drinking.
1: and you would yeah. would you say I mean so you knew right away it took me, it took me it took me a little while to figure out that I was an addict um and and like I said before, I think it was your success that kept you from getting clean because like why would you get clean if you were successful while you were using? did you agree i mean yeah. like, is that was that where it was for you because I mean, you went from city to city, company to company, success to success uh using basically
2: i did and and I realized you know like when I started my cable marketing company at 22. I'd been sober the year prior. And um, when I moved to Buffalo, New York, I started drinking. I started this company. And within six months, I had 60 people working for me. I'm profiting 25 grand a week. And I went right back to doing coke. And the money was coming in and it was just flowing. And hell, I'd give my drug dealer $20,000 cash and say, bring me an ounce of cocaine every day. And he would. And, you know, I imploded that. But my whole thing was I'd go to meetings, I'd clean up for six months, eight months, and I would just smoke weed. I would just drink. But it always kept taking me me back and back. And uh, yeah, it uh, but it was 30 years of that. 30 years. You yeah. know, I didn't know my ego and my pride was so big Um yeah. It, but that fucking heroin, though, that that's what destroyed me. I mean, absolutely. But I functioned on that. And when I was in the tech space, you know, I'm going and closing multi-million-dollar deals, shooting heroin in the fucking bathroom. When, Nobody knew I would. When no the, one knew I was doing it.
1: When was the first time you used a needle?
2: So I didn't use a needle for about three years.
1: With, and, with heroin? Uh, did you shoot? Then you did. I, and you and
2: didn't. I started heroin in probably 2000, 2001, and I snorted it. And at first it was China White, and then I was dealing with this guy, I can use his name because he's dead too, Ray Roland. Ray was third highest up with the Maniac Latin Disciples Street Gang in Chicago, but he also worked for the— city of chicago water department for 15 years and that was kind of his cover for the gang and i was the only white guy allowed in in this neighborhood at this man's house i knew his wife his his four daughters and i thought we were good friends but ray liked me around because i spent a lot of money but the crazy thing is about a year after dealing with ray he says timmy get in the car and we drive downtown and he says you see that red door I want you to get out of the car and walk through that. I said, what's that? He said, that's a methadone clinic. And I said, well, why do you want me to go there? He said, because Timmy, I really like you, but you're going to die. You're buying and doing way too much heroin. So I went and got on methadone and I got up to about, I remember calling my wife and saying, I'm cured and I've been doing heroin the past year. And then she started putting two and two together on why I would get sick every three weeks and she's researching the internet and all this she thought I had some crazy disease and she wanted to send me to I don't know Tibet or somewhere to live with the Buddhist monks and it was crazy but anyhow the methadone I got really angry on and I I quit taking it well I didn't realize how addictive this stuff was and I got super sick and I called Ray and I so what do I do? And he said, you got to go back on heroin. And, and that's what I did. But about two years into it, the snorting wasn't working. And his wife shot me up. And I said, now I know what I've been missing. Right. And I'm petrified in needles. To this day, I'm petrified in needles. But I mean, my arms are shot. My Jen and I went and got physicals last year and it took them, you know, 30 minutes to to find a vein to draw enough blood. I mean, that's my worst fear today. It's, it's, it's fucked up, man. You can't explain it, but when when you need that,
1: when you are I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, when, when you're sitting with Ray's wife, right. And you're like, fuck it. Shoot me up. Do you remember the, the moment? Like, what was it like? Could you tell that story?
2: Yeah. I mean, we were in, in her bathroom and BB, this God, she, she died too. um, but, I mean, it, it was this process. But I remember, and I was afraid, and she said, just turn your head and don't watch. And as soon as that dope hit me, it was like euphoria. And I don't glamorize. I never want to glamorize what it was, but at that exact moment, it was fucking euphoria, and I chased that needle ever since then. And uh, it was fucking horrific because when I ultimately went to prison – and we lost our house in foreclosure. My my former wife, Shannon, and the kids had to move everything out. My former wife said she found 35 bags of heroin hidden in my shirt pockets and in my suits and stuff and needles everywhere because I'd get all messed up. And, you know, I jeopardized my kid's life. I jeopardized my family's well-being. But you live to use and use to live, man. That's what we do.
1: Absolutely. Um, I, the first time I shot up, I had left. Or no, the first time I shot up, I was with this woman and she she shot up. So I was like, shoot me up. And I basically overdosed and she had to choose big. She was a larger woman and she dragged me to the bathroom and put me in the tub. Uh, And I came to from just cold water or whatever. Uh, The next time was I had left rehab with a bunch of addicts. We left early and they shot up and they said I was an idiot not to shoot up. So I was like, Okay. Um, Was it that kind of thing Where they were just like How could you not be shooting up You're not feeling it Were you just desperate to feel it
2: No I just was sick My my nose was clogged And I I wasn't thinking that way I just wanted to do it And uh, that's what I was looking for But I I couldn't (laughs) I got a crazy overdose story for you So when I overdosed and hit those cars I, I was fighting my case for 21 months And I kept using And I overdosed one more time and I went to my so-called friend's house and uh, Rich, Rich and Missy is their name. And, and they're both dead, too. And I can remember shooting up and I'm like, oh, I didn't get enough. And I shot up another rig. Well, when I came to, I'm in the hospital and, and my face is beat up. I got a black eye. I'm missing a tooth and I'm asshole naked because I cut all my clothes off me. And, and my wife is standing there crying. And I said, what happened? And she said, Tim, they found you dead on Hill Street. I said, what? Well, what had happened was I overdosed. And, and my so-called friends dragged me down two flights of stairs. That's why my face was all beat up. Oh, my God. Drag, dragged me two blocks down the road and left me for dead in the middle of the road. And I guess a cop happened to come by and, and find me. And, you know, that's what happens in, in this game. And if, if that cop didn't find me, I would be dead. But here's what I did. You know, I, I got clarity. I came to. I remember the doctor trying to talk to me. And I said, F this. I'm out of here. And I pulled everything out. I put on a gown. Um, had my wife take me home. I got changed. And I went right back to Rich and Missy's house. And I beat the shit out of both of them. <laughs> and I got, I got my money. I beat the shit out of both of them bad. And I got my money. And I went back and got more dope. Because that's what addicts do.
1: Yes. That's a crazy story. Um,
2: man, it's insane
1: in the book. I, I I don't know why these, my favorite stories are always the story and it's fucked up, you know, in recovery to really love these stories. But when, you know, that when you got arrested and you went to court and they didn't take your jacket and your jacket was full of drugs, can you want to tell that one? That's like my, I love stories like that for some reason. So,
2: so I fought my case for 21 months and I called my lawyer and he said, Tim, we got court tomorrow. He said, this is it. They're they're going to sentence you and they're going to take you. And I can remember um, my wife and my little daughter drove me to the train because I never had my family go to court. And they're like, OK, we'll see you tonight. And I said, no, they're probably taking me today. And if you don't hear from me by 10 o'clock, that means they took me. So. I took the train down and I called my dealer and I went and got five jabs of heroin, which has 14 bags of heroin in a jab. And I can remember this poor Polish cab driver. I'm in the back of the cab snorting all this heroin. She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, shut the fuck up. I'm going to prison. I'll tip you a hundred bucks. Well, what I did, I took all the bags and I had, I had, a, I go to court in a hell's angels card heart jacket, and I had cut a hole in the sleeve and I put all the bags of heroin in there. And I go get sentenced while well, my coat was on the bench cause I went up in front of the judge and I had a nice outfit on and they sentenced me and they take me right back. So I'm telling the CEO, I said, look, I, my lawyer comes back there and I said, look, you need to get my coat. And the, the uh, CEO was like, you don't need it. I said, look, dude, it's cold in those bullpens, pens and it's got my wallet and cell phone. I want to give everything to my lawyer. So my lawyer goes and gets my coat <clears throat> So the CEO gets my coat and he pulls the sleeve out. And I said, what are you doing? He said, well, you're a heroin addict. You probably got a a syringe hidden in here. I said, sir, I'm going to prison. I have a wife and four kids. Why would I do something so stupid? And he goes, you're right. And he throws me my coat and I give my wallet and my cell phone to my lawyer and said, you know, thanks for everything, Dick. Can you mail this to my, my family? And he's like, yeah, and wishes me the best of luck. Well, as I put on my coat and they put me in a holding cell, bags of heroin start falling all over the floor. So I get them out, and and I was able to get in and transfer them into my socks so I could get through the machine. And I really don't remember much of Cook County Jail. I spent about three days in there, and it was a total blur. And, and next thing we're going to uh, Stateville Prison— But the reason I brought the heroin in, I didn't want to get dope sick. And in Cook County Jail, you can see a doctor and they gave me a bunch of meds. But obviously that didn't work because I did all that. I can remember in the bullpen, this guy is puking his brains out just all over. And there's 80 guys in there. And I, I said, dude, are you dope sick? He's like, yeah, it's horrific. And I said here and I gave him a bag of heroin. And he was so grateful. But I said, you need to understand this is going to happen in the next eight to 24 hours. You're going to be doing this again. He's like, yeah, but I'll be fine right now. So,
1: yeah. Classic. Yep. Didn't the same thing happen, though, at home with a suit jacket full of drugs? That was like, wasn't? Yep. Yeah, that that was like and, and, and you got out of jail and your wife had your jacket
2: so yeah i i love why
1: do i why do i love jackets full of drug stories so much
2: so so this was when i overdosed and hit the hit the cars i spent a week in cook county jail and my mom and my wife at the time wouldn't take my phone calls and now this happened december 16th december 22nd i finally talked to my mom and and she agrees to put up the bail money because dad needed to get home for christmas so i get. The 23rd, I get bailed out and they let you out at like midnight. My wife had been sitting outside for, you know, 10 hours. We drive home, not a word said. We pull into the garage, go into my home office. And, and of course it's, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I said, did you happen to go to the van because I don't have my glasses? And she said, yeah, your glasses are on the desk. Your coat was in there. That's hanging in the closet. I'm going to bed and we'll talk in the morning. And she left the room. I got my glasses. I went to my coat, opened up the inside coat pocket. There was all the heroin the cops never found. I went right back to use it.
1: It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. The whole the whole thing, obviously, you know, you've been to the moon and back, you've been to hell and back. Um, and you paid the price, you know what I mean? Like, and, um, and the fact that you can, you know, that people benefit from your story is the most important part you know like uh and I, yeah. I hear that all the time uh when i read about you so many people pop up that you've been like you know right there to get them into treatment to offer them advice to get them to a meeting and you never would have been able to do that without going through the the torture you went through so i mean
2: no it, it, it it's all part of the journey and you know, today, my wife and I, Jen, we get to do this thing called life and, and speak and do interventions. And man, our, our, it's amazing. I mean, I, I had that documentary on A&E called dope man. And we're always, we were just on inside edition and the Tamron Hall show and the Abrams angle. And it's, we get to use our voice for the voiceless. Now that's what Jennifer always says, you know, we're the voice for the voiceless, you know, um, she's got an amazing TED talk. I, I did one about three years ago, and, and we started a podcast, the Tim and Jen Show, and life is good, man. So
1: I also really appreciate you uh, you joining the Dopey Nation group and just like being a part of it. It's just like I mean, I think humbling yourself and and being around addicts, like no matter what, is like the recipe. I think if it's your work, if it's your passion, if it's just for yourself. Like I know for me, like being around it, it just makes me, uh, makes me better. And, and they're my people and, and I'm happy that you're a part of it too.
2: Well, I'm, I'm grateful to be a part of it. And, and this is, they are my people. Um, addicts, alcoholics are who I relate with because I'm one to the core. Um, and my wife and I just happened to be two people like yourself, Dave, that were able to come out of the mess and, and. And, and prosper and look at how many lives you touch with your podcasts, with your pages and you know that's not why you started this but that's what it's morphed into and this is just the beginning and and i'm truly blessed and honored that i get to be a part of this
1: no it's awesome um the, the other weird thing and i i mean i i struggle with this from a day-to-day sort of thing is you know like what i mean the phrase built-in forgetter it isn't about Forgetting uh, what it was like to be an addict. What does the phrase "built-in forgetter" actually mean? I always forget.
2: Fuck! I don't know. I've never heard that one. Okay,
1: they always talk about a built-in forgetter, where where I think they're talking about forgetting how bad addiction well, was. Well, that
2: so when you forget what it was like, as chances are, when people get complacent, they pick up and use again. I promise you, I will never forget the pain of sitting in that prison. And, and shitting and puking myself and everything I want. The day you forget the pain is the day you think you got this and that disease will creep in and tell you you can smoke a joint or you can have a drink or just one more. And no, I'll never forget it. But that's what happens. And, you know, you get out of the recovery scene. I see it, you know, and I quit going to meetings. I quit having purpose and connection. And next thing you're using again, I mean, For today, I can assure you I'm not using today, and that's all I have. So I live for today, I live for the moment, but I will never forget the past, and uh, I look forward to the future.
1: Right on. You still do meetings or no?
2: Hell yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Are they all All Zoom? Are they all Zoom, or are you going in person?
2: In Florida, we were able to do some in person. It depends on where we are. L.A., a majority are still shut down, but we just got back a few days ago, so... Uh yeah, if we can go in person, we're definitely going in person. We we're in Arizona three weeks ago. We got to go do one there. So yeah, no, I'm mean, media makers make it, man. Simple as that.
1: All right, Tim. Well, I really appreciate your time. The book is from Dope to Hope. The show is what's the show? What's the Tim and Jen show called?
2: The show is the Tim and the Tim and Jen show. Was, and it's yes. on all the Beautiful. all the podcast platforms and uh the books on Amazon, Tim Ryan from Dope to Hope. Um, that's on Amazon and, uh, Tim and is our website for, uh, finding Jennifer and I and what we do.
1: Well, awesome. Thank you for coming through and thank you for being a part of it and being patient with me. I know sometimes David. I'm, t- I'm, t- I'm t- hard to get a hold of sometimes and, to, 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 and you're so busy too. You're traveling all over the place, but I really appreciate you coming through.
2: Dave, I love you, brother. Thank you for uh, spending this time with me and letting me be a part of your uh, Dopey Nation. Truly an honor.
1: All right, Tim. Thanks, man.
2: You got it, brother. Have an amazing day. You too.
1: Such an honor to have Tim Ryan on the old Dopey Patreon show. The dude has been through it. You know, there's no question about it. And he is definitely helping a ton of people. And uh, I hope you guys liked it. Hope you guys are doing well. Have a beautiful night. Thank you for contributing to Dopey Patreon. Thank you for being a part of the Dopey Nation. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the
3: world. I wonder would it do me any good Until I get somebody in my Cause I wanna be so good, so bad I wanna be good. Mm, I wanna be good. That's
0: good so bad. That's good so bad.